and welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Stephen Ussery, and I'm happy to welcome Blake McVeigh back as guest host of the program today. Blake is the Public Services Supervisor of the historic Cossett Library in downtown Memphis. Today is the second part of a two-part interview with journalist and author Paul Kicks. Paul's first book is The Saboteur, the aristocrat who became France's most daring anti-Nazi commando. And today he and Blake will finish discussing his latest title, You Have to Be Prepared to Die Before You Can Begin to Live, Ten Weeks in Birmingham That Changed America, which is published by Celadon Books. Paul and Blake left off talking about the strategy of using teenagers in the civil rights protest in Birmingham, Alabama, to illustrate the vicious nature of Bull Connor and the Ku Klux Klan in enforcing segregation. The SCLC was committed to the basic idea that we have to goad Bull Connor. We have to goad, you know, the, the individual officers, the Kennedys. You know, that theme comes up several different times. And it's interesting that even though they were very committed to that core tenet of the whole thing, they had this line in the sand, this pretty firm line in the sand that Bevel, you know, he pushed past it anyway. Yeah. He's like, we can't use kids. And he's like, we have to use kids. We don't have anybody else. And then pretty soon the rest of the SELC had to sort of callous themselves mentally enough to get with the idea of, okay, what's going to happen if we actually use children in this campaign? What will that look like? Do the kids even want to do it? Here again, I'm, I just owe a huge debt of gratitude to the Birmingham Civil Rights Institute and Birmingham Public Library, which talked with so many of those child protesters, you know, um, oftentimes years after the event. And this is what I should say, too, not to like put an overt sell on the book. But one of the things I really liked about this research was it came at especially especially the oral history stuff. The Birmingham Civil Rights Institute, just as a really quick aside, you'd have to check, but I don't think it's even incorporated until like 92 or 93. Branch's book that covers Birmingham comes out in the 80s, right? The reason I bring this up is because basically from like 92 until kind of the present, the Birmingham Civil Rights Institute and the public library have continued to do these oral histories with people to get more and more interviews done about what it was actually like in that spring of 1963, which means for somebody like me, and I say this in the acknowledgments that like I had access to material that literally, and no other book in the civil rights canon did just because it's been more recent, right? That's another reason why I just poured over everything that I possibly could because I wanted those fresh details that perhaps other books didn't have. But to bring it back to the kids, yeah, like, there were people that I spoke with or one of those institutes spoke with, and they described how, you know, they were willing to do this. A lot of times they had a tremendous amount of maturity for why they did it. They actually looked beyond their own lives. They looked to their children's lives or their grandchildren's lives and said, well, what sort of future do we want for our own kids, even though we are nothing more than like teenagers ourselves? I mean, the obvious thing to say about that whole issue is they really had more at stake than any of the adults did because oh, it was yeah. their future that was on the line. Their future and very much their physical safety. Yeah. Again, what happens in D-Day and Double D-Day? Like Revolting. I did a reading a few weeks back down at the Birmingham Civil Rights Institute. So this is people who know their stuff, right? And I described what some people in the oral history said they felt or they experienced themselves. 
And even at the BCRI, I had people in tears because like, I had no idea it was actually like that. Mm. It's way worse than anything you've seen in any grainy black and white imagery. There were war photographers present that day, people who'd covered World War II or Korea, people who would then go on to cover Vietnam. They would look back on their own careers, and some of them said, nothing was as bad as what I saw in Birmingham, Alabama in 1963. Well, in the book, when you first used the term concentration camp, in my mind, I was like, okay, that seems a little dramatic, but it was a concentration camp. Yeah. I mean, where they're housed is a literal cattle yard with like, it's not exactly concertina wire at the top, but the cattle yards are meant to little keep, difference <laughs> to keep the animals in. And they're seeing these kids as nothing more than chattel. That's where they're kept. And it wasn't just me saying that, by the way, like there was the sheriff of Jefferson County who was like, "Uh oh, this does not look good optically for us to be keeping them in this facility. And it's interesting, you allude to several different times about some of these, especially the firemen, but some of the cops at some point, they kind of started to find a little bit of a conscience through all of it. It was toward the end, it seemed like, but in a sense, that's surprising. Uh, yeah, that's true. There are. I'll leave it for the people to read the book to, to see where that is, because it's. I'm trying to make everybody a little bit more nuanced than what you might otherwise assume. But one thing I will say that didn't make it into the book, when King was held in the Birmingham jail, and I spent almost the entire time in that passage talking about like his own sort of intellectual arc that he travels along to reach the point of him reaching these conclusions in the letter and why he wrote what he wrote. But one thing that he talked about in later interviews was in Birmingham, there were jail guards who were at first like openly sneering at King, calling him all these racist names. And by the end, you know, he was there for like eight or nine days and he's held largely in solitary confinement. When these guards would come by, he would talk to them and, and he began to say, you know what, look, the sort of equality that we're looking for, it's along racial lines, but ultimately we're going to want an equality that's along class lines because I bet that you aren't paid all that well by the city, right? I bet that you and your daddy have had a hard time making it as ends meet in Birmingham. Like your, your lives aren't that much different than poor black people here in Birmingham or throughout the Deep South. Those guards were really starting to relate to King. And they began to see him as, you know, shocker, a human, but then as also somebody that they might want to listen to. That aspect of King and his message and, and his goals is something that is often excised from his story, the whole yeah. class struggle. And there's a great book by a Tennessean, Hampton Sides, Hellhound on His Trail is basically about the final year of King's life. And there you see him explicitly move from a racial class struggle to a broader class-based struggle, and the members of the SCLC not fully embrace it in the same way that the members of the LBJ administration didn't fully embrace it, because now you're talking about unions and you're talking about Vietnam and who's actually fighting over there. And so in any case, like that is something you're right, that has been excised from his story. And, you know, to a certain extent, even when we're talking about Birmingham, like the goal of Birmingham wasn't even really to break segregation. The goal of Birmingham was to make the images of Birmingham so horrendous that the Kennedy brothers would have no choice but to do the one thing they had always said they would never do, 
which is author civil rights legislation. And that was the thing that King wanted above all. I mean, this is, again, comes back to a certain extent to Wyatt Walker, but Wyatt Walker was like, the problem with our previous campaigns is that we've basically gone where we thought we could win. Let's go instead where we know violence will be visited upon us. Let's go instead where we know that we can turn our bodies into a metaphor of the black experience itself. And through those metaphors, perhaps speak a message to the two people who can perhaps change America, like author a new chapter of America. Let's try to get the Kennedy brothers to see what we see. That was the real point of Birmingham. One of the notes that I wrote when when you were describing Birmingham is, you didn't use this term, but it seemed almost like the Birmingham was initially like a carpetbagger sort of a city, that the northern, you know, elites came down and figured out how to derive profit from Birmingham, and they kind of installed their little overlords, but they did it on the backs of both black and white in Birmingham, and that King was, in those moments, speaking to that struggle. Yeah. So first, King knew some of that history. But for your audience, Birmingham's founded after the Civil War. And in fact, it's founded because, again, these hills have coal, have iron. They have the raw materials necessary for an industrializing America. And so it's <laughs> it's named Birmingham not as some homage to the South, but actually like as a place of Birmingham, England. Right. Right. Like is a place where there's another there, there are other places where there are raw material extraction. But to your point, yeah, it's very much a place where the northern financiers, be they the steel owners in Pittsburgh or those guys as money men in Boston or New York, they come down to Birmingham and they are the ones that actually charter the city. And they do so alongside other people, other sort of entrepreneurs in Jefferson County. Those entrepreneurs in Jefferson County then play a pretty large role in founding Mountain Brook, which is the Tony suburb outside Birmingham. And meanwhile, just say like, look, it's going to be awful conditions in Birmingham. We don't want anything to do with it. So everybody that's poor and white and redneck and everybody that's black and just trying to hold on or just trying to build any sort of life, especially if we're going to talk about like just after emancipation in the years after slavery ended, you know, that's who went to Birmingham. It was a place with like terrible illiteracy, terrible venereal diseases. I mean, it's just on and on and on. And that was it was that way for decades. And King understood some of that. You alluded to it earlier that this was the foundry in which the the clan really built probably their biggest stronghold, right? Yeah. Well, in 1920, it did have the largest clavern in the nation. It had over 20,000 members. And I'm not the only one arguing. There are other historians that are doing so. And also native Birminghamians who are doing it uh, as well. But basically the argument is, look, Birminghamians didn't hate because their granddaddies lost at Gettysburg. White Birminghamians hated black people because they were like little better off than black people in the here and now and the 1930s, 1940s, 1950s, 1960s. And as a result of that, there was this humiliation that manifested as almost like this tactile, seething poison. And it's the reason that like white Girl Scouts, I was, you read some of these stories from Birmingham, you're just like, good God. White Girl Scouts were beaten by adult, very likely members of the Klan for trying to help black girls read in Birmingham, right? Like the Klan was embraced in Birmingham society. The Klan would sometimes lead parades where Birmingham public officials would follow behind. 
Like that was how central and woven into the fabric of the city the Ku Klux Klan was. It seems like, to your point, anywhere else in the South, they could point to Gettysburg or, you know, whatever. They, they could talk about the Confederacy, yeah, which was history. By the early 60s, it was 100 years old. 100 years old, But yeah. people in Birmingham, they could walk anywhere in the city and see, hey, we've got it just as bad as them. What's going on? We're supposed to be yeah. better. Yeah. So the poor white working class and even middle class that chose to live in Birmingham, they couldn't lash out at their bosses in Mountain Brook or their bosses' bosses up in Pittsburgh and keep their jobs. So they lashed out at blacks, right? You see this play out right now. You see this play out with hatred against various immigrant groups, like they're taking our jobs, they're taking our livelihood. So this is a theme that is, you know, not unique to Birmingham, but in Birmingham, it perhaps was <laughs> accentuated more than it was in other places, just because it was a place that was unique in the South. Like I called it a Southern outpost of Northern interests. And I think that's true. I think it truly was. And to a certain extent, it kind of remains that way today. So you mentioned Martin Luther King Jr. being in jail earlier in the nine days and all of that. And, and that is where possibly his most famous work, that's from where it sprung. You said that with the writing of his famous letter from a Birmingham jail, that he was refuting the idea that many around him had that power yielded to superior ideas. Yeah. To talk about this, we have to really talk about sort of early 20th century Christian theology. And you have to start with a guy named Walter Rauschenbusch. And Walter Rauschenbusch was somebody who ministered to the poor and working class in Hell's Kitchen in New York. And the gospel that he preached was very much an active gospel, where it was this idea that, you know, the divine lives even within you. So why not honor it by uniting with your fellow brother? And if you do that, maybe together we can finally work to break the bonds of our oppression, which in those days was just like untenable working hours, right? So the social gospel doctrine that emerges from Walter Rauschenbusch led in some measures in the late 19th century and early 20th century to some of the reforms that we enjoy today. Shorter work weeks, you know, no, like really, really close monitoring of any kids that would want to work in any capacity. There's a whole host of things that Rauschenbuschian social gospel doctrine helps to put in place. For a long time, King, decades later, was completely enthralled with Rauschenbusch. And he read him more than he read Rousseau, more than he read Nietzsche, I mean, Voltaire, on and on and on. But then he basically comes under the grip of this guy named Reinhold Niebuhr. And Niebuhr, he himself ministered to the poor, in his case in Detroit, a few decades later, in his case, like around the time that Henry Ford was building the factories and, and there were the immigrants from Europe and then also blacks who'd begun to immigrate from the deep South up to Detroit. But the deal with Niebuhr was basically that he's like, Look, like it's fine to say that we should all have better working conditions, but if the work itself remains exploitive, you know, if you're working in a foundry where life is drudgery, you're coming back with your skin literally scalding after the end of the day, is that actually the sort of work that that you should be doing? And his idea 
which is what King took hold of, was this idea that the only way that you begin to obtain any sort of power is to take it wholly from somebody else. He wrote this book, Moral Man and Immoral Society, and it's a beautiful argument. It actually makes perfect sense. A person on his own can be moral and can act with God's grace, right? But place that person in a collective, any collective, labor, oligarchy, whatever, and that collective wants one thing, power. And so Niebuhr's argument was basically to say, look, in every argument, every fight in the world is a fight for power. And so you have to find a way to like take it from the powerful. Well, King didn't know how to do that until he began to read Mohandas Gandhi. And in Gandhi, he began to see some of the nonviolent tactics that had worked in India. I'm giving away some swaths of, of it, but I think that the reader could still take a lot from it because it's a lot more detailed than that. Absolutely. And really, to my mind, way more fascinating than even than this summary, because here again, I have like really Walter Isaacson to tip the hat to, because when I was trying to figure out like, well, wait, King is writing this soaring bit of rhetoric, which is which is seen as, you know, the arguably the greatest written document in the course of American history, right? How did he come to these beliefs? Which made it even more remarkable because when he's writing that letter from the Birmingham jail, he's doing so without any notes around him, right? He's having to pull everything from memory. So not only is that speaking to how amazing his recall was, but it, to me, what I was trying to figure out is, all right, that recall is only reflective of some core beliefs that he understands, not in his head, but in his heart and in his soul. And for that to be the case, he must have done some deep, deep studying on this matter. So where did this intellectual evolution begin? You know, how did it spin? To what did it actually evolve? And why is he at the point now where he's writing this? And that really throughout that letter, or rather that chapter on him writing that letter, that's what I'm trying to, to give you. A sense of like all the other movements that have been happening before him, be it in the United States or in India, or even like, you know, I mentioned Napoleon and, and Tolstoy plays a role in all this too. And so it, it's, it's spanning multiple countries. It's spanning continents. How do all of these disparate influences influence what King ultimately puts on the page? I'm glad you like that because it, it honestly was one of the hardest chapters to write, but it was also one of the most satisfying because the only thing I wanted to do was just relay, well, wait, what exactly, like what influenced King? How did that influence shape him? And then how are subsequent influences, how do they override previous influences? So again, I'm, I'm pleased to know that you found that kind of captivating. And you said at the very beginning of the book, in your prologue, that you were writing for those who today were discouraged, lacked hope that things could get better, they could kind of see what's going on in our world today. Well, this is an idea that we could use to try to make things better today. Wasn't that part of the point of, of you writing this chapter? Yeah, absolutely. You know, Napoleon says that upon his death, he basically admits that he'd lived his life the wrong way. He basically said, I've been trying to conquer through conquest. And every great emperor tries to do that. But the problem with conquest is eventually it invites more violence and the empire collapses upon itself. But he said somebody like Jesus, he had built an empire based on love and on kindness. And 2,000 years after Jesus died, people were still talking about him. 
And Napoleon wonders, will people still talk about me 2,000 years from now? He's not sure if they will, right? To get back to the, one of the reasons I wrote it, it's the enduring idea of love, but I would say even the more central idea of hope, hope, hope above all, because that was a hopeless start. They were in a hopeless situation. They could have folded and should have, but they never gave up hope. They never gave up hope. And it's so easy to say it. You can just see so many inspirational talks about just keep hoping and you'll have it. This book, you see what it's actually like to be confronted, to have your life and faith tested. And we all in life will have our faith tested if we have any you know, beforehand, but certainly just the circumstances of our life tested in some way. And we'll want to fold. And the purpose of me writing this book, you know, it came at, frankly, a really interesting time. I had been laid off from my job at ESPN, the magazine, not long after I signed this book contract. And I didn't know how I was going to support my family. I really felt like, am I going to bankrupt my family for trying to be a self-employed writer? But I thought, well, I've got this book. I've got to sort of forge ahead. And every day, this wasn't just the researching of the book. Researching that book buoyed me, gave me the hope that, yeah, like I can do it. So part of the reason things I'm saying in the prologue, it's definitely true to my own life. I took a lot from this book. I learned a lot of how to lead my own life based on how the civil rights leaders in the 1960s lived theirs. That's my hope, really, that anybody can come away with a, a means of inspiring themselves in the days and months and years ahead. We don't need to talk about every single detail of the book, of course, because you want people to read the book, and I, I highly recommend it. But because of your prologue and what we were just talking about, that ethic, I guess you could say, stayed with me throughout every word that I read that, how is this relevant today? Yeah. How, how are any of these situations, how are any of these actions, how are any of these individuals analogous to any of the same today? And the next logical question would be, how can we use some of these same principles to fight today? So it's analogous because, I mean, I saw the despair in my own family. So I say this in the prologue, so it's not giving away too many state secrets by saying it now. But in my wife, Sonia, is from inner city Houston. She grew up one neighborhood away from George Floyd. Sonia was the same age as George when he was murdered. Sonia had cousins who went to Yates High, which is where George went. Uh, some of her cousin, Derek, remembered, actually went to high school at the same time as George and knew him and remembered him as like the, the tight end who took the football team to the state championship game. So I say all that because George Floyd's death was the first time that Sonia and I allowed our kids to watch footage of a black man being killed by law enforcement. And as a result of that, our twin boys were then nine and our daughter was, was at the time 11. The boys in particular, they had a lot, a lot of questions about it. And I'll save some of it for the prologue, but the upshot of it is that 2020 was a really hard time in my family. At one point, my, my son, he ran from the room in tears after seeing somebody else shot by law enforcement. He's like, why do they keep trying to kill us? And my kids began to say, even though they were just kids, they began to talk openly about how America was awful and nothing had changed and, and they were going to move away from here just as soon as they could. And so Sonia and I, you know, Sonia's a writer as well. So she's a reader too, which is another way to say she's a reader. 
And so we had read enough of the civil rights movement to know that, well, there's actually one story that we were both fascinated by, and it was Birmingham. And the the odds there, the hopelessness there was 10 times, you could argue, even what people feel today. And if they could find a way to not only endure, but overcome in 1963, surely we all can find a way to do that today. Part of your question here is like, well, how can we do this today? What are some of the, what are some of the analogous aspects of it? In some ways, there are still sort of political extremes that, that mirror what you saw in 1963. On the right, you see a conservative party that is obsessed with book bans and sometimes book burnings. And on the left, you see a culture that is obsessed with identity politics. You know, like, for instance, I don't know if you know this, but right now at the University of California, Berkeley, there is off-campus housing that is for BIPOC students where white students or their parents are not allowed to enter. And so... (laughs) It's just absurd on both ends of the political spectrum. In some ways, I would argue that those same absurdities existed in Birmingham and King and others said, no, there has to be a way to integrate. You know, one of my favorite passages of the book is actually something that gave me goosebumps when I came across it. I'm sitting there researching it one day at the Birmingham Civil Rights Institute. I think it was a civic, it's either it's either Insight or the Public Library. I forget which one houses it. But it's basically the notes from a mass meeting. And it's in April of 63 at the 16th Street Baptist Church, which is the famed church in Birmingham. And King starts to tell this story. He says, I had a dream tonight. It was a dream in which You know, little white girls went to school with little black boys and the kids played in parks together and swam together. And then he said, yes, I had a dream tonight. And I'm just like, wow. Like he said that, you know, this is three months prior, well, four months prior to what he would say in August of 63 on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. And that speech would be the one that Americans would remember But even in Birmingham, he was talking about the need to look past our differences, the political extremes, and to find a way to integrate, to love one another. And so I was like, yes, like, of course, like even that signature line would have some root in Birmingham. And that's really the future that I hope for my kids. You know, I should say that I'm a little bit biased because I'm white, my wife's black. I definitely want my kids to live in a world where they can be as integrated as, as Sonia and I have tried to raise them as. I do think that it will happen, but I think that this is going to be a sort of like, it's the constant fight of the American experience, right? What does it mean to get along with each other? What does it mean to extend kindness to each other? You see things sort of wax and wane. And I hope that coming out of COVID, I hope that you will see a Republican party that is just like, this is stupid. Like you should be able to read whatever book you want. It doesn't matter. Just as the same way, I'd love to see a Democratic party that distances itself from the sort of far left progressive faction that sees in everything, nothing more than everybody's skin tone and misses the underlying humanity beneath. That's my real hope for the future. And I'm actually hopeful. I'm optimistic. Well, that's good to hear, especially with all the studying you've done in some of the darkest times in American history. Yeah. It's kind of like because of that stuff that you see, well, man, they got through this. We can too. But there's definitely a lot of inspiration to find in this particular work of yours and helping all of us figure out how we forge our way forward during some 
pretty difficult times in America right now. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I wanted this book to speak to Americans today, to be very much rooted in that moment in 1963, but to see throughout those 10 weeks all of the similarities to our own experiences in the spring of 2023. Thank you again for your work. Thank you for this time talking to me about it. I've enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much for having me today. Thank you, Paul. Paul Kicks is the author of You Have to Be Prepared to Die Before You Can Begin to Live, 10 Weeks in Birmingham That Changed America, which is published by Celadon Books. Blake McVeigh was your host today. I'm Stephen Ussery, and this is Book Talk. Thank you for joining us today. Book Talk is produced in the studios of FM 89.3 WYPL Memphis, a service of the Memphis Public Library, a division of the city of Memphis. Book Talk is copyrighted by the Memphis Public Library, all rights reserved.